Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, for many big companies, working remote is something that hasn't been chosen, but <laughs> has been thrust upon them by the pandemic. Uh, given that you guys have been doing it longer than anyone else, uh, I'm curious, was the decision to become distributed something you planned from the outset or was it uh, more of a happy accident? Uh, I think it was a little bit of a happy accident in the early days, but it certainly became a much more intentional decision fairly early on. So we mm. started as a side project. Side projects can't afford offices. Uh, and so that's where the happy accident <laughs> begins, uh, where we sort of just got used to working via chat and github pull requests and uh other like digital tools but this was your side hustle totally and then <laughs> you know when we went full time on it the three of us moved from missouri to california to go through y combinator which is a, a startup accelerator out there and for three months we lived and worked out of a two-bedroom apartment that was the only time in the company's history where everyone was in one location but then at the tail end of that one of my co-founders mike he moved back to Missouri to be with his then girlfriend, now wife, as she was wrapping up law school. And so, okay, we're now kind of remote again. There's two of us in California, one in Missouri. And we started thinking about, we'd really like some help. We wanted someone to help with customer support. And we wanted one other engineer to join us uh, just to make things go a little faster. But we'd never hired anyone before. And so <laughs> some advice that we were given was, you know, go hire former colleagues, people that you've already worked with in the past. It's going to make it a little less risky. You already have a professional relationship. So it should just make it easier to do. But none of our network is in California. It's all back in the Midwest. And so we hired a former colleague of mine that was in Chicago. We hired another one that was back in Missouri. And so at five people, you know, we're in three different cities. And what we realized was our revenue is growing. Our customer count is growing. Uh, the team is happy. Our customers are happy. We're happy. So as far as we could tell, this thing is working. And so at that point in time, that's kind of where it flipped over from being a happy accident to saying, no, this is going to be a thing that actually can scale and work really well. Uh, and so we sort of went all in at that point in time. I'm talking today with Wade Foster, CEO and founder of Zapier. It's uh, great to finally meet you, Wade. I've been an admirer from afar for many years. And I, I think, if anything, your story and experiences have become suddenly more relevant than ever, given the, uh, the mass experiment remote work that everyone's now plunged into. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. <laughs> so what are the things that we tend to take for granted in a traditional office culture that have to be more consciously uh, designed in uh, when you have a distributed organization? I think everything has to be more <laughs> disciplined and intentional is the honest answer. Like, There's right. nothing that you can't think through intentionally. And when you're in an office, honestly, you get a, you can like as a manager or a leader, you can get away with a lot um, by being kind of a little bit lazy about how you run it. No, no, not lazy in sort of like a malicious or mean way. Just it just sort of works for you. Uh, you know, you can manage by presence. You can see your folks, and you know, you can see work getting done. And so it kind of works. It sort of just makes stuff happen. But when you can't see your team when you're not sure what's happening, you literally don't know if they're at work or not. You have to redesign how you manage your workforce from the ground up. And it forces you to actually be a better leader and a better manager. 
But because instead of managing by presence, you now have to manage by outcomes. You have to say what's important for us to deliver to our customers. And so if you're managing an engineering team, you're starting to say, are we shipping code? Are we shipping it fast enough? Are we shipping it high quality? If you're managing a customer service team, you're saying, are we helping our customers? Are we getting to them fast enough? Are the uh, engagements high quality? Are our customers being successful? If you're managing a marketing team, it's are the campaigns running? Is the ROI there? Uh, are we spending our money wisely? And so you're paying attention to the actual quality of the work and you're paying attention to it where it happens. So if, you know that might be in GitHub, that might be in your blog, it might be in your customer support tool, you might have some metrics dashboards that you're paying attention to. And so all of a sudden, remote work has forced you to be a better manager because you have, you have no other option but to manage your team by the outcomes. I, I can understand the presence um, aspect of it. I mean, certainly the, the management by walking around just turns out creepy when you try to virtualize it. Uh, <laughs> totally. And, and I've seen some terrible things where people you know, are using webcams and stuff to, just to keep an eye on whether people are actually sitting in their chairs and working. But yep. it's also problematic sometimes managing completely by output as well because holding people accountable to things where they are not necess- necessarily completely responsible for that um, can be challenging. It certainly can be. Um, this is where I think you know, there is some, some fuzzy area, hmm. but it's definitely a big improvement over presence. Right. Uh, I think we can agree on that. <laughs> so one of the aspects I'm really interested in is where the importance of a data-driven culture intersects with distributed organizations. And I mean, my, my thinking on this is that it's always been important to have data-driven organizations, but it becomes even more important when you don't have the luxury of being physically all together in one room standing up trying to hash through an issue. How have you guys you know, approached this you know, in your experiences? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You can't rely on everyone you know, huddling around a conference room and sort of hashing it out and being like, ha we've sort of by osmosis gotten to the best answer. Instead, right. you have to create ways for your teams to make decisions in the absence of being in the same room. So there's a few things that we've done that I think have really helped. One is... Uh, having a culture that defaults to action. So one of our values is is default to action. So we want people, we encourage decision-making, we encourage them to just go use their judgment. We trust our staff and we would rather them take action and make a mistake than to sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait until someone can show up and help them think through it. So I think that sort of values is critical. The second thing is transparency. So we have another value that's default to transparency. And so if you write down your decisions over time, uh, if you write down your values and how you think about those decisions, that helps people default to action. They're able to make better decisions because they can see how the organization has made decisions in the past and say, ah, these are the types of ways that our company makes decisions. This is the, the documentation point you were talking about before. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah. And so the third thing there is, I think, getting crisp about how you are transparent with these things. So mm. we use a decision-making framework called DACI. It's uh, D-A-C-I. And it stands for Driver, Approver, Consulted, and Informed. Uh, there's a whole bunch of variants that you can find. There's like the RACI, the DRY, like uh, there's a bunch of different ones, but they all boil down to the same concept where if you have a particular problem that you're working on or a particular decision that you need to make, you're going to have somebody who is driving the work, trying to figure it out, like collecting data, figuring out what the options are. Uh, you're going to have an approver. This is the person who sort of rubber stamps and says, yes, this decision is good. Let's do it. 
you're going to have uh, cons- people who are consulted. So these are your experts. These are folks that have uh, important information that will help you make a smarter decision. And then you have your informed. These are the people that once the decision is made, they need to know about it because it impacts the work that they do. Now, not every decision has to be so incredibly formal and all these roles be different persons. Sometimes, you know, a person might do all of those roles uh, at once. But just simply having the framework helps people think through some of their decisions they have to make on a, on a day-to-day basis. Now, the second part of it is, and particularly for trickier decisions, we write all this stuff down. So at the mm. top of the doc, it says, here is who are the people that are involved in making the decision. And then in the middle of the doc, you start to outline the options. You say, here's option one, option two, option three. Here's the pros of each option. Here's the cons of each option. Below that, you have people that are weighing in on why they think certain options are better than the other ones. They'll say, hey, I actually think option two is the best. and Someone else might say option three. And that really helps the ultimate decision maker look at it and assess the the reality of situation with all their folks' expertise. And then they can finally say, well, you know, I think this one is the way to go. Then that document gets preserved. So it goes into a decision-making log where other folks can come back and review that over time. So say someone new joins your company and goes, I really think we should consider launching a new plan for our customers. And I think we should have a low-cost option. Well, might be a good idea, might not be a good idea. They can go consult a decision log and see the last time we made a decision around a similar topic and see where uh, things sort of shook out. And as a result, they can get up to speed on the, no- the, the sort of organizational knowledge that's built up around our plans. And, and uh, it's easier then to question whether the assu- underlying assumptions or circumstances have changed at the time that decision was made. You got it, right? Because uh, right. it might be the case that it's time to make a decision and it's a good idea. Or it might just be that they haven't been around long enough to really understand the nuance of this stuff. But having those things logged prevents you from relitigating the same decisions over and over and over and over again uh, because you have this stuff well-preserved. So ironically, because we are now distributed and we have to default to more written communications, it's easier to preserve the collective memory um, of the organization. Definitely. This is, I think, a massive benefit for most companies is that the decision-making gets logged better. And so in theory, you should get better at making decisions over time because uh, everyone can benefit from the organizational decision-making muscle. And presumably eventually train algorithms to uh, you know, search through those decision logs and, and make decisions <laughs> on your behalf, right? I mean, that would be wonderful, right? Like I can outsource, outsource my job to AI at some point in time. <laughs> but, but there's another aspect I think that I know you guys look at, which is around data analysis and how you coach people to get better at that. Could, could you talk a little, little to that point? Yeah, I think, you know, coming back to our sort of first value of default to action, right? We want people to be, to use their own judgment and to go solve problems on their own. We don't want them waiting for, you know, their boss or an expert to have to come online and advise them on the the decision. Hmm. So if you sort of have that as a value, you need to then provide the resources for folks to do that well. And so one of the tools that our data org has built is called the Golden Path to Data. And so this is like a five-part mini course that you can take in, you know, it probably takes 10 hours all told to go through everything. And it starts with teaching you some of the basics, like how to use Excel, and then it graduates to things like SQL and Looker queries, and eventually like helps you query against all of the Zapier 
internal knowledge and database and things like that. Uh, and so by the end of it, you're actually like a fairly savvy data manipulator. You don't necessarily, maybe you wouldn't actually get hired as a person, but for someone who's not like a traditional trained data analyst, you're pretty darn effective. And so this has the two good side effects. One, your whole org gets better trained up on how to answer basic questions, and it frees up your data org to really search for critical insights. They can have the time and the energy and the space to get into harder questions. And we even do even subtler things to help like sort of incentivize folks to go through this. So for example, our data folks, uh, if someone were to come into their channel in Slack and say, hey, can you help me answer the question how many signups we had today? They'll answer the question and then say, by the way, why don't you go through the, the data course? It'll help you answer these questions on your own. And just as an FYI, we actually prioritize <laughs> requests that come in by folks who have gone through the course. Uh, RTFM, right? <laughs> totally, exactly. Uh, in a very polite way. Yep. <laughs> Have you found that this has changed the quality of the discussions between team members? Are they more likely to also default to using data as a way of uh, framing and solving problems? It definitely does. And you, you know, I think the real power, you don't need, you know, we're a 300 person org, you don't need everyone to be an expert. But the real benefit starts to happen when every team has one of these data power users in it. Uh, and so maybe not the whole org, but it just one means that they can self-serve, answer these questions that the team comes up with. They can be faster in responding to these things. It can happen in closer to real time. And that increases the decision-making velocity that's happening inside the org, which is pretty powerful. To the point of documenting the, the collective memory of the organization, do you also have some sort of centralized uh, data facility as a single source of truth open to everyone that teams refer to when they're framing problems? Yeah, we, so we have, we use Looker for like querying all of our sort of customer data and other types of data that we have uh, inside the company. Now, there are sort of two different things. You can do it on your own. However, uh, if you're to sort of present organizational knowledge uh, to go back to the company, hmm. we actually do have a sort of data governance body that has to apply a data approved stamp to it. So you do need, um, if you're going to sort of commit to the organizational memory on these things, we do want that to get looked at by uh, someone who is an expert on that topic. But it still doesn't stop you from like, you know, self-serve and making your own action in your own little part of the world. Um, but if you're going to contribute back to the global knowledge, we do want that to be sort of certified by somebody who really knows what they're talking about. In traditional organizations, leaders often struggle uh, to delegate uh, decisions to smaller teams because there's a sense that there's a person in the hierarchy who has the experience and skill to make that decision. And, and you mentioned the DAISY framework that you use. How, how do you sort of figure out who can make a decision, who can approve it? Is that based by title or do you have something that's a little bit more uh, fluid? It's definitely more fluid. Um, you know, in a distributed org, you're going to have more decentralized decision making. Huh. Uh, and in fact, you're probably going to want to have that happen. And so we often talk about things like local decisions and global decisions. So local decisions are ones that you want to be solved by people on the front lines. Those are folks that see and understand the customer problems more intimately than, intimately than say, a, a senior leader could, because the senior leader has a whole bunch of other stuff they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so those local decisions, you want them to be empowered to make this, those decisions. Whereas global decisions maybe impact, uh, you know, maybe a business model decision or 
a pricing decision or something that you know spreads across your company in a sort of far reaching and broad way those are things that should be global decisions and so we often take talk about them in that sort of vein and it is a little more fluid sometimes you know it's not clear exactly should this be a local decision or should this be a global decision and so those are just regular conversations we have on a day to day basis you know, when we first started chatting, we were talking about um, how you sort of scaled up from a th- three-person organization to, what are you now? I think you're over 300, right? Yeah, a little over 300. <laughs> uh, as you started to get bigger, what were some of the, the pains you experienced as a result of the distributed structure? And what were some of the systems and protocols you had to evolve to, to compensate? Yeah, I think there's a few things that come to mind. First is time zones. Right. Uh, you know, we were initially, I think, really optimistic about our abilities to use time zones effectively. Uh, And I think over time, our viewpoint has become a little more nuanced. Uh, So there are some places where time zones are definitely advantageous. Uh, Customer support, uh, your site infrastructure. It is amazing to have a follow the sun model, a 24-7 model for those organizations because customers get continuous service. No one has to work night shifts. No one gets 3 a.m. pager duty calls. Like that kind of stuff is really valuable. So for those orgs, having the the time zone diversity is pretty powerful. However, if you look at maybe somebody, a team like a product team that's developing new features where they have to have more iterative feedback cycles, it's nicer to have more time zone overlap because then they can get that feedback cycle to be quicker. You know, they can maybe do three or four in a day rather than having to you know, give feedback during the time zone handoff where you can only do one iteration cycle. Uh, So I think that was one critical learning was uh, the time zone piece is just more nuanced than I think we thought. Well, that's that's sort of the heads up on the time zone. We could... Yeah, I mean, this is sort of related to a question I had around adapting agile, you know, for these environments Mm -hmm. because in product teams, the sort of the agile methodology, which was premised on uh, Mm co-location and sort of fast feedback cycles, is that something that you've had to overcompensate for with other things in order to, in order to make that work? I mean, we do use um, sort of an Agile-esque process for our product development cycles. I would say we're more Agile in philosophy than we are in sort of religion. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, yeah. not, we're not dogmatic about it. But we do think that there are things that are pretty good, like you know, having small scope, having process that fits the team. Things like that, I think, helps teams you know, regardless of being in an office or being remote. One of the things I'm, I'm also very interested in is, is is really where Zapier fits in to the future of work in general, because um, we're seeing more and more that automation is changing the nature of work and, and what is valuable human activity. So rather than making a decision, you're potentially training a system to make a decision for you. Rather than doing work, you're designing the workflows around it. Um, yeah. You know, is this something you're seeing in, in, in the organizations that use you, that the kind of the nature of what valuable knowledge work is starting to shift? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, even just in the last, you know, six weeks or so, I think you're seeing, you know, the the future of work is getting accelerated overnight. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why Zapier has been so valuable for us is is it helps them connect all these digital tools that have the data in it. And as folks have been forced to move remote, they're adopting those digital tools at a much faster pace. And because they're adopting all these tools, they have more workflow, integration, automation needs. 
Uh, and that's where Zapier comes in and helps folks. So, you know, you can have things set up zaps that will detect anomalies in your data. You know, if this thing goes up by 10% or down by 10%, we want to send an alert to this person and ask them to take a look or make a decision or uh, do a task. Uh, if someone fills out a form on our website, we want it to get lead scored and routed to this CRM or send a follow-up email or alert the salesperson to make the call. Uh, and so you have these little workflows that um, don't require you uh, that allow you to be more responsive to events that are happening in the world and react in real time rather than having to sort of triage all this stuff manually. I mean, th- this used to be the stuff that IT used to do. And and then there yep. was a trend to create like these meta operating operations teams. So you had like marketing operations or even le- legal operations, you know, who were looking at some of this automation. But But is really the vision here that every employee essentially should have the power to um, think about how they automate uh, the the parts of their job that don't that shouldn't be done by them every single time. That's exactly right. You know, these this stuff shouldn't be so hard. It used to be that you had to, you know, know how to write Python and use an API right. to do any of this sort of stuff. Now it's like and, Excel, you know, right? Yeah, it's like you want to get it to be something that would, you know, just be in like the office suite. It's like, hey, this is just a thing that worse. We sort of assume all of us know how to do. Uh, and so it needs to become that simple. And I think Zapier has done a good job of uh, moving us in that direction uh, so that more folks can take advantage of this sort of special skill, if you will. We, we used to talk about shadow IT. Uh, is there mm-hmm. some kind of shadow algorithmic organization now where eventually we need to audit all of these audit automated workflows being created by you know, <laughs> your army of citizen developers? I definitely think you know you want to empower your workforce to uh. get stuff done. Right. We, we know that, you know, if you empower your folks, you're probably going to have more creativity, things like that. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things we're thinking about, too, is how do you do that? Not in a shadow way, but how do you do that in a way that uh, is in alignment with IT? Right. So with our Zapier for Companies product, we're thinking about how do we give controls to IT admins so that they can empower their workforce uh, to connect all these tools, to build these workflows, to automate this stuff. But it can be done in a way that you know, provide some safety and some security that is, you know, useful for uh, an enterprise at any scale. I think to that point, I've, I've been talking to a lot of uh, CIOs and CDOs of, of big organizations and all of their digital transformation plans have kind of been accelerated in the last, in the last few months. Mm-hmm. What do you see is going to be an emerging model for big organizations um, after this crisis in, in terms of the way they work, the way they make decisions, um, the way they I guess, the way they design their operations. Yeah, I think they're going to see that they need just, there's going to be a lot more tools that they end up using. Right. Um, because, you know, you you can't work in an office. You can't sort of gather around a conference room table. And so that's going to lead to the even more adoption of digital tools. And a lot of that adoption is not going to be centralized sourced. You can't, it's impossible for an IT org to understand the needs of every user in the company uh, intimately. And so you have to trust legal or HR or marketing or sales or whoever it is that's adopting the tool that they're going to bring in tools that best suit them. And then IT has got to find a way to fold that in to the broader set of needs for the organization. And so I think you're just going to see a lot of more bottoms up adoption of this stuff and right. then IT figuring out how to make it uh, safe. So, so if you know, in in, in twenty fifteen, we're talking about bring your own device. Twenty twenty is bring your own tools. 
Yeah, bring your own apps, right? Right. Uh, but th- this does also change the capability set around what it is to be a good employee or, or an effective leader in an organization. And and I think given that you guys have had to work in this way for many years, do you have a sense of what the DNA of a high performer looks like in a distributed organization and how that's different to maybe one in a more traditional organization? Yeah, I you know, honestly, I don't think they're that different. I think a high performer in an office is the same thing as a high performer in a distributed org. But I think that where things are different is that uh, a low performer can hide in an office, but a low performer has a lot harder time hiding in a distributed org. Really? That, that seems counterintuitive. I, I thought you could just sort of drop a few emojis in a Slack channel and <laughs> and, and hide it out for years. It doesn't work that way, right? Yeah, it doesn't work that way, right? You can see like, oh, this person isn't making commits or hey, this person isn't uh, you know, doing customer support or whatnot. Like you can pay attention to those things. Whereas in an office, you can sort of play the politics game a little bit. You can smile to your boss. You can be really nice. You can be really friendly. And people are like, oh, that person sure is great to have around and not actually look under the hood and go like, actually, they're just not actually doing anything. But I think a high performer, these are people who understand what's important to the organization. They drive decisions forward. They document their work. They share that knowledge back out to their teammates. And they really solve for the customer needs. Uh, And so they're just sort of constantly working uh, to improve things. And that works well in an office. And that works well in a distributed company. So I don't think it changes all that much. Uh, for a high performer. I think a lot of that takes coaching and that's clearly what you guys have been doing by both um, explicit and sort of more subtle means. When, when, when you're encouraging people to solve complex issues, do you prefer that they default to longer form, you know, data-rich memos like the way Amazon yes, do? Yes, Or, or, or do, you, do you say synchronous video calls? I, d- written memos are right. way better because it forces clarity of thinking. You mm. have to do you be have able te- to Do you have templates around that, like the suggested ways we- of approaching things? Yeah, we do have some templates. Obviously, you know, the Daisy model has a template that's associated with it. So it helps them structure their writing. Uh, We have templates for other things as well, status updates, certain reports, uh, what have you, that help people write in a way that is going to be compelling, convincing, what have you. What things work best synchronous versus asynchronous in terms of communications? You know, we default to asynchronous for a lot of things. You know, any sort of information sharing, status updates, reports, all of that stuff is easier to consume in a written format. You can just read through it at your own pace and get a feel for what's going on. Uh, the place where synchronous really is helpful is debating complex decisions, right. uh, where it's just hard to do asynchronously because you can't get enough iteration cycles or there's emotions on the line. you know, And that doesn't get conveyed super well via text, right? You can slap an emoji in there and it, it doesn't really solve the problem. We just, so you'll often see, you know, things inside of Zapier where two people will be talking in Slack and you can tell that they're discussing a tricky decision. And, you know, there'll be a three or four message where they're both sort of talking past each other. And then finally, one person will say, <laughs> let's jump on Zoom real quick. Right. And then, you know, they'll hash it out over Zoom. And at the end of it, they'll be like, quick follow up here. Here's what we decided. And they're both on the same page. And so those trickier, more complex decisions are just better to happen over a, a, a real-time video call. Basically the opposite of Reddit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> you, you know, yeah. j- j- just lastly, Wade, I mean, even large organizations would look at 300 employees and go, okay, that's still a, you know, a branch office for us. Uh, 
when when you're not 300 but say 3000 people um, mm-hmm. what do you think would need to change in your organization in terms in terms of your model and your management structure i mean maybe even do you think you actually ever need to be 3000 people maybe is the implicit question as well well i'm sure there's a point in which we do get to that size i think you're constantly trying to um, understand uh, like how to group these folks in ways that they can still feel like fairly decentralized uh, decision-making power. So if we get to 3,000 folks, perhaps we actually have a second product line or a third product line. And you know, half the people working on one product line and they're automating, working fairly autonomously from the second group. And so yes, while the organization has grown, it still feels like two smaller companies rather than one bigger company. And so I think you're constantly thinking that way. You're trying to figure out as we scale to get more organ- get bigger size, how can we still make it feel like there's smaller sets of communities and smaller decisions being made across the organization? So when you're working in virtual teams, it is more important to feel like you're part of a small tribe rather than a, a silo or a division. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, the, the, the teammates that you work closest to you, that becomes your community. That becomes your sense of camaraderie and the, the sense of purpose there. And yes, you need to have a sense of purpose for the global org. That's important. But it's not going to connect with you the same way that um, you know, the thing that you're doing with your teammates will. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.